Welcome to Law X.0, a Bloomberg Law podcast dedicated to seeing around corners and preparing you for the next version of the legal industry. Welcome to Law X.0. I'm Meg McAvoy. And I'm Dory Goldstein. We're legal analysts with Bloomberg Law. Today we're talking about corporate governance, and here to tell us more is Nell Minow. She is the vice chair of Value Edge Advisors, an advisory firm for institutional investors. Nell was formerly the president and co-founder of Institutional Shareholder Services, now one of the world's largest shareholder advisory firms. Nell has authored three books and written more than 200 articles on corporate governance. She's also a film reviewer who writes and speaks frequently on film and media. Thanks so much for joining us, Nell. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Nell, this isn't the first time that Meg and I have heard you speak. We had the pleasure of hearing you when you came to V-Law, and it was wonderful. Oh, I had such a good time. I have to admit something to you, though. Okay. <laughs> when I saw that there was an hour on my calendar blocked off to talk about corporate governance, I was not excited. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> like, how am I going to pretend to be interested in this topic? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then we got there, and from the minute we walked in the room, it was engaging and interesting, and I learned a lot. Oh, thank you. I have to say that the first time I heard the term corporate governance, <laughs> I thought, uh, I think I fell asleep before the second syllable. <laughs> but uh, I have found uh, that it is unbelievably exciting and crazy and fun. It is so interesting and such an ongoing topic, which we're going to mm-hmm. uh, get to a little bit today. Yeah. Um, we also both watched a movie that you recommended from your from your film reviewer hat, uh-huh. which is The Solid Gold Cadillac, um, which I, I think is one of your favorite movies on corporate governance. The topic. best movie on corporate <laughs> governance. That's the one that I showed my children and said, this is what mommy does at the office. <laughs> From 1956, and you've got the board of directors with all of the conflicts of interest, and they're all dishonest. And um, I mean, it was just a and, great introduction. And overpaid CEO and yep. accounting fraud and a conglomerate that uh, should not have been a conglomerate, had <laughs> non-core assets. An excellent point that I didn't pick up on when I watched the movie. But (laughs) for those of you who haven't seen it, it's worth just turning on for the first 10 or so minutes. It starts at a shareholder meeting. It's dramatic. It's exciting. And it's educational. (laughs) And it's a romantic comedy. (laughs) It is a romantic comedy. There is romance. Um, I want to I want to bring up the idea that you coined that only corporate governance can save the world. Before we break that a bit down a little bit more, what do you mean by corporate governance? Well, corporate governance is just like political governance. It's how things get decided about policies, about priorities uh, in the corporate world. And uh, I don't make too many comparisons with political governance, but the one that I do uh, rely on is that it's the same idea of checks and balances. Just like in political governance, we have the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. In corporate governance, there's a balance of authority between the shareholders, the managers, and the board of directors. Each one plays a really important role of oversight. And when that gets out of balance, that's when things go awry. What happens when it's out of balance? Well, uh, very often uh, the power uh, results in a disconnect so that, for example, the CEO gets paid even when he's not doing what is best for shareholders. I say he because most of them are he. Uh, Or um, sometimes uh, the shareholders can also unbalance things when you have an activist Uh, what we used to call a corporate raider, come in and take value that really should belong to the other shareholders. So it's really important to maintain that balance and make sure that each of, like rock, scissors, paper, that each of them has oversight over the other two. Interesting. 
Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the fact that this balance and what should corporations be doing and what should the government be doing in terms of regulating what corporations are doing is very much still a topic of debate. I mean, we, the movie's from 1956, but this is still kind of an ongoing issue. So I think you pointed out for us that the Business Roundtable recently released a statement on the purpose of a corporation. And I, I mean, I wanted to ask you more about this statement because frankly, maybe they're just good at phrasing things um, so that, you know, I feel uplifted when I read it. But um, they said the purpose of a corporation is to deliver value to its customers, to invest in its employees, uh, dealing fairly and ethically with their suppliers, supporting communities in which they work, um, and then finally generating long-term value for shareholders. So what's, I guess, how does the Business Roundtable's perspective differ from yours and those of you know, advisors like you on what corporations should be doing? Well, of course it sounds very pretty, but there's no real substance to it. No company is going to serve the interests of its shareholders if it isn't taking care of its employees, its customers, and its suppliers. It's going to go out of business very quickly. And if it isn't behaving ethically, and if it isn't uh, doing, uh, it's, you know, it's a part of its brand, really, that it's it's doing the right thing. So all of that is just fine. But what exactly does it mean? And what makes me nervous about it is that the last time the Business Roundtable started talking in this very flowery language about how we're going to be everything to everybody was during the era of hostile takeovers in the 1980s. They issued a similar statement back then. And what that meant was that uh, basically it's like a shell game. Accountability to everyone is accountability to nobody. And at the end of the day, you have to have some measure of what it means. I don't notice any of the signatories to this statement uh, announcing new performance goals for their incentive compensation. Uh, what I do notice is that uh, they run out of their favorite trick of the last year of buying back stock in order to gin up the uh, stock price. And so now they've really got to figure out something else to pay themselves on. And by making it so mushy, uh, it makes it very difficult to hold them accountable in any kind of a meaningful way. Interesting. Interesting. And um, in terms of employee treating employees fairly, Glassdoor reviews are not... Uh not cutting it. <laughs> well, exactly. I would love to see them tie CEO pay to the glass door reviews. <laughs> right. That would be that would be really interesting. Or, or, or even something like turnover or investment in employee education. Mm. You know, we have called for a long time. You know, companies always say in their colorful uh, annual reports with all of the pictures of the racially diverse uh, employees at the picnic or whatever, they always say, and our employees are our most important asset. Well, you know, treat them like that. Mm. And again, I'm super agnostic about what a company decides their goals are. Uh, and as long as they will put their money where their mouth is and decide to pay the CEO, if it's market share, let it be market share. If it's a return on investment, if it is cash, uh, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. But pick something, tell us what it is, and then pay yourself on it so that we know that you really mean what you're talking about. Uh, some years ago, there was a company that sounded like they knew what they were doing. They said, our bonuses are going to be based on seven metrics. Well, that sounds great because seven is a number and metrics sounds very numbery. <laughs> right. So right. that, sounds, that great. sounds great. But then um, you read the metrics and they were basically a little of everything. Uh, and then they said at the bottom, and it is within the discretion of the board to award 100% of the bonus for the achievement of any or all of these metrics. So that's your basic 
throw a dart at the wall and then throw the target around it, <laughs> yeah. pay package. And that was Lehman Brothers the year before it went under. So, wow. yeah. So uh, that's what you have to look at. Not what they say they're going to do, but what they're going to pay themselves to do. Hmm. So speaking of Lehman Brothers mm-hmm. and this breakdown of accountability, can you give us some more examples of bad corporate governance and the results? Well, um, you know, one of my favorite examples, because it was one of the first companies that I looked at when I got into this business 30 years ago was uh, that at that time, O.J. Simpson was on five boards and he was on the (laughs) audit committee of one of them. Um, And the other guy didn't know any more about accounting than he did. He just didn't have a Heisman trophy. So uh, (laughs) also at that same time, uh, Inland Steel and Cummins Engine had the CEOs heading each other's comp committees. So it was like, no, let me pay you more. No, let me pay you more. And um, and at one other company, the CEO's father was on the comp committee. Uh, and, uh, you know, I could say that if my dad was on my comp committee, he would be very tough on me, but this guy's <laughs> father was not. Um, but basically, I think that sort of the classic bad example, uh, which we've seen several times, is the signing bonus. And there was a company that I had never heard of before, but I read their um, their uh, new CEO's employment contract, and he got paid um, $2 million shares at $10 a share below market. Uh, And that's a bet that the stock's going to decrease in value. So that made me very nervous. And then I read further and saw that the make and model of the Mercedes he was getting as part of his (laughs) signing bonus. You know, the guy got a $20 million signing bonus. He he could buy his own Mercedes. But okay, the make and the model of the Mercedes was in the contract too. Mm -hmm. Plus, since he had to move from the East Coast to the West Coast, to uh, take the job. Um, the contract provided that the company would fly his family out to visit him once a month first class, including his mother. This is all in his <laughs> employment contract. So I knew nothing about the company, but that seemed very, very fishy to me. Also, big, big risk factor. Uh, the two previous CEOs uh, were still on the board. So hmm. I wrote uh, something about it and um, actually got on the CBS Evening News talking about it because of the mom thing. Everybody loved the mom, the mom flying out. Uh, you know, I could just say as a mother, we love it when our boys want to spend time with us, but we don't <laughs> like them to externalize those costs onto the shareholders. So um, my mom, my mom has always said that. Yes, absolutely. I think I have a, a, an embroidery on my wall that says it. So. Anyway, I got a lot of hate mail because it was, at the time, the fastest-growing stock in the history of the New York Stock Exchange, but it also became the 11th biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history. That was Global Crossing. So... Uh, so those are some of the atrocities that I have seen over the years. I have a longer list, but I'll save that for the next time I'm on the show. Interesting. But it sounds like these all these things that you're talking about are things that savvy investors could, in theory, kind of become aware of and, and skim the news for before they're looking at a company to invest in. These are warning signs. Absolutely. And I don't understand. I've spoken to so many groups of securities analysts and asked them, why don't you look at CEO pay? We have found that to be the biggest risk factor for investment risk and litigation risk and liability risk is the way the pay is structured. And I think any investor, you don't need to be a specialist in CEO pay. All you need to do is get one of those once a year uh, issues, either from Business Week or the Wall Street Journal, who's the best paid, who's the worst paid, and get some idea there and then short the really bad ones. Interesting. Very interesting. So we've been talking a lot about bad corporate governance. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> can we can we switch gears a little bit um, and talk about 
what are these indicators that would make it good? Well, uh, I'm a lot better at identifying presence of terrible uh, rather than absence of terrible. <laughs> so um, uh, it's tough to say, except that generally speaking, um, something like, say, Facebook, where the founder still has voting control, but uh, doesn't has gone public. That's an indicator, and you see we're seeing that more and more these days. That's an indicator that the uh, founder wants to have the benefits of the public markets, the limitations on liability, the access to capital, but really wants to pretend that it's still a, a private company, mm. and that can be a problem. And I th I think it's fair to say we've seen that at Facebook in the in the poor response they've had to the number of cases against them uh, for their dealing with uh, private information. Hmm. Hmm. What's the I think you talked before about this, though. The solution is not necessarily for investors to walk away. It's for them to stay in the game. So what, what kind of influence can uh, investors have with these situations? Well, you don't need much stock to file a shareholder proposal. The SEC is thinking about increasing the amount of stock you have to have, but even then it won't be that much. Uh, and so... The shareholder proposals are filed very often by people with very little stock, but they are supported by the large institutional investors. So if you can get something on the proxy statement about the CEO's pay, about the compensation committee, about the number of conflicted directors, um, you can have a tremendous impact. Uh, there was one guy a few years ago who was very interested in director retirement plans, which is of course, a terrible way to pay directors. Directors' pay should be tied to the performance of the company. They have their own jobs. They have their own retirement plans. It was a ridiculous thing to do. But he personally was responsible for getting rid of all of them. He just went hmm. after them, one after wow. the other. And that was just a guy with a few shares of stock. So that's one thing to do. But I think the most important thing that individual investors can do is look and see who where their uh, mutual funds are and how they vote their shares. Uh, after we uh, lobbied the SEC for 14 years, they finally agreed. And now these companies have to let you know. If you're with Fidelity or you're with Vanguard or you're with Tia Craft uh, or with BlackRock, find out how they vote their shares. And, and one index fund is going to give you the exact same return as another index fund or a mutual fund, but there is a difference in the way they vote your shares, and you should be aware of that. Hmm. Can law or regulation help shareholders? Absolutely. Uh, there's a group um, funded by uh, the fossil fuel industry right now, um, but that's pretending to be a public interest group <laughs> called the Main Street Investors Coalition, and they're trying very hard to make it harder for shareholders to have any kind of an impact. And remember what I said about the importance of having that balance uh, of accountability. They're trying to limit the accountability of shareholders, particularly on issues having to do with climate change. Climate change is a big, big, big risk issue and a big return issue, too. There are a lot of opportunities around for climate change, but the fossil fuel companies don't want them to get involved. So the SEC is considering a rulemaking right now that will limit the rights of shareholders. And uh, people should be very aware of that. Uh, comments uh, make a real difference there. Can you talk a little bit about the vision that you had for this influence that institutional investors could have in the landscape? Because my understanding is that when ISS was founded, it was kind of a new thing, and now it's it's become quite influential. So what what role do institutional investors have and, and organizations like your, like your current one, Value Edge? 
Well, I think it's more of a chicken and egg. I think institutional investors have become influential, and ISS is one of the firms that they rely on uh, as they try to evaluate um, their options. Uh, and really, the only source of independent analysis on proxy issues is from these proxy advisors. Nobody has to use their services. Nobody has to read their stuff. Nobody has to follow their advice. And the data show that the more controversial and complex the issue is, when it's not just approve the auditors, approve the board of directors, but when it's complicated, uh, the large institutional investors, who are, of course, the most sophisticated financial professionals in the world, um, depart from their uh, advice. So. Uh, it used to be, up until about the 1980s, that what was on the proxy was not very important. It was vote for the auditors, vote for the board of directors, and it didn't really matter. It was during the takeover era where there were huge abuses of, ta of shareholders by both raiders and management that all of a sudden these issues became important, and the executive compensation issues, and these shareholder proposals and business combinations. And that's why these industry, the industry sort of began, uh, uh, ISS and Glass-Lewis and its competitors. Um, so they do play an important role, and that is why the industry is trying to shut them down right now. Mm. Going back to the beginning of this, mm -hmm. we started with only corporate governance can save the world. But why only corporate governance? Why not laws or regulations or something else. Why, on, why only corporate governance? Because uh, one of the first things you learn about in law school is jurisdiction. If you don't have any jurisdiction over an entity, it doesn't matter what they do. It's like uh, they found the free space on a, on a board game. So the problem is that corporations are multinational. Uh, there's a race to the bottom. We used to talk about the race to the bottom in Delaware. Now it's a race to the bottom in the Isle of Man or the Cayman Islands. And it makes it very, very difficult to exercise any kind of jurisdiction over a company. Uh, and for that reason, um, the corporations themselves really are playing much more of a role. And if you think about my alma mater, the Environmental Protection Agency, the first job that I had after I graduated from law school, um, they have not done a lot on air quality in the last few years. On the other hand, Walmart decided to make changes in their Chinese operations that have done more to improve air quality than anything that any uh, country's environmental agency has done. So the fact is we have to acknowledge that corporations are borderless, investment capital is borderless, and uh, you can have corporations that do great things like what I've just described by Walmart, and you have corporations that do terrible things like the financial meltdown. So corporations are really, really uh, the most powerful entities in the world right now, and we've got to recognize that and find some way to work with them so that they are acting in what's in, the, in everyone's best interest. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And this is a, something we wanted to ask because many of our listeners are potentially corporate in-house counsel. Mm -hmm. What do you think in-house counsel should be doing in terms of their advising of boards to, uh, frankly, foster this good governance? Uh, the number one thing that I think that they should be doing is reaching out to their large institutional investors. Those people are essentially permanent investors, whether they're index funds or they're just so large they might as well be. Uh, they always say, you know, the best time to make friends with your investors is a year ago, and the second best time is today. So when a raider comes in and when a hedge fund comes in, you want to be able to say to them, listen, 
our guys have got our back because we've got theirs. I know CalPERS. I know TIACREF. I know BlackRock. They are not going to be fooled by whatever you're trying to do to manipulate the stock price in the short term. So uh, you go ahead and you try to make your case to them, but we, they've heard from us already. So that's the number one thing I would I would recommend. And thank you, Nell, for joining us. If listeners want to follow more of your work, how can they reach you? Well, I have a blog at uh, valueedgeadvisors.com, and I tweet as Value Edge Advisors. Uh, but they can also find me um, tweeting under my various other accounts, including Minnow, where I do corporate governance, movies, and pretty much everything else. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law. For more Bloomberg Law analysis, visit news.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg hyphen law hyphen analysis. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dory underscore Goldstein. That's D-O-R-I underscore G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm at Meg McAvoy, M-E-G-M-C-E-V-O-Y. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees, too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.